I want to start this morning by laying some groundwork for us. Because the passage we come to today um, needs to be interpreted in light of some of the things that will lay as some groundwork for us. If you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, as Samuel was getting old, Israel demanded that he set up a king for them. And it's because they wanted to be governed, it says, or judged like every other nation or nation around them. Now, if you remember, when God called them and brought them out of Egypt and brought them through the wilderness, brought them into the land, God didn't want Israel governed by a king. He was going to be their king. They were going to be different than all of the other nations. But Israel wanted to be like every other king. And part of that was because they thought that by having a king, they'd be protected from their enemies. So in many respects, it was disobedience or rebellion against God who had protected them up until that point. And so you remember that they cried out for a king. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to look at what Samuel says because he gives them a warning. He kind of tells them what it will be like having a king. And that's going to play into what we talk about today. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18 is what we're going to read. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. He said, This will be the procedure of a king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, of fifties, and some to do his plowing and reap his harvest and to take, or to make weapons of war and Equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters, your perfumers, your cooks, your bakers. He will take the rest or the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of all your vineyards and give to his officials and his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Catch that? You'll become his subjects, his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So basically what Samuel does here, he tells them a king would draft their sons into military service, he would recruit their daughters to serve in his palaces, he would confiscate the best of their land, all their farmland, he would take their servants, he would tax their products by taking 10% of their vineyards and their grain, he would take their servants and service animals for his own work and his own fields, he would tax their flocks by taking another 10%, ultimately he would become their king, they would become his servants and would ultimately serve him, and as a result, under that burden, they would cry out to him for help. And he says, well, the Lord won't hear that, meaning he won't change it. They got a king... They're going to keep a king. God would not change that. And so in spite of that warning, though, Israel continued to demand a king. So even with that warning, they said, we don't care. We want a king. And so the Lord relented, and he chose Saul, and then ultimately David. Now, all of that was no shock to the Lord. In other words, he, he knew that that's what would happen. He knew Israel would beg for a king. He knew that even though he warned them, they would still ignore that and they would still demand this king. And we know that because God actually made provisions in the law years earlier to regulate how a king is supposed to behave. So he knew this was all coming. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 17. The Lord lays out in the Old Testament law 
rules for the king. And again, these will apply to what we study today in our primary passage. Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting in verse 14. We'll read 14 through 20. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me because I want to be like all the nations around me. That's what we just saw in 1 Samuel. goes on in verse 15. And you shall surely, surely set a king over whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not of your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law, the law of God, God, the Old Testament, on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by carefully observing, obeying, all of the commands or the words of this law and its statutes. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. Remember, the Lord said, you'll become his servants. Here's the command not to raise himself above his countrymen. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in this kingdom in the midst of Israel. So we basically have here our list of five commands. Okay? These are important. The first rule was that the king has to be an Israelite, could not be somebody from the outside, couldn't be a foreigner. The second rule was that he must not multiply horses for himself, and he shouldn't certainly go to Egypt to get those horses. That's likely a reference to starting to build a standing army for offensive purposes. The third rule was that he must not multiply wives for himself. He couldn't build a harem. The fourth rule was that he couldn't multiply gold or silver. He couldn't use his role as king to enrich himself. And then the fifth and final rule was that he should take a copy of the law, probably more specifically, these specific commands, and to write those down on a scroll, he was to do it in front of the priests. And then he was to take that, and every day he was supposed to meditate on those five rules. Why? So that he wouldn't elevate himself above his people, wouldn't make them his subjects and his servants, but also that he would not forget to obey the Lord. So that's what was laid out for the king. So the reason I wanted to cover this is because it's crucial to our understanding of the passage today. When we were introduced to Solomon in the beginning of this book, we are told that he loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. Everything we've seen about Solomon as we've gone through this, these first basically ten and a half chapters. Solomon has been this godly, gracious, God-loving, God-fearing individual. Everything we've seen about him has told us that he was a godly man who loved the Lord, who served the Lord, who was faithful to the Lord. He served his people well. When the Lord looked at him and said, What can I do for you, Solomon? Ask what you want. The Lord was really pleased, remember, because Solomon didn't ask for riches or wealth. He didn't ask for God to destroy his enemies. What did he ask for? A heart that was willing to obey. He says, Lord, give me a heart that will listen to you, that will obey, a listening heart. And the Lord was so pleased with that, he says, okay, Solomon, I'll give you the ability to discern right from wrong. I'll make you wise, but I'll also go above and beyond that. I'll make you a great king. I'll make you rich. 
I'll make you wealthy. I'll make you the greatest kingdom in all the earth, and I'll make you the wisest man. So the Lord loved his response to just give me a heart that wants to obey you. And what happened? Well, he becomes the most powerful king in the ancient Near East. Word of his wisdom and his intelligence, his wealth spread throughout the world. It says that men and women and kings and queens from all over the world would come to hear Solomon teach, would, would come to see his wealth and his kingdom. It's hard to calculate exactly what Solomon might have been worth in terms of a, a kingdom there, but most estimates are that even today with the wealth of Elon Musk and, and Bill Gates and others all kind of combined, that Solomon's wealth probably even exceeded that. And so God did all that he said he would do. But then a tragic thing happened. It seems to come out of nowhere. When we get to chapter 11 next week, it literally is out of nowhere. We go from Solomon in the first ten and a half chapters being this godly, gracious, God-fearing man to all of a sudden, right out of the gate in chapter 11, we learn that he forsakes God. And that's the last thing we learn about Solomon in the Bible. And you wonder, how in the world does that happen? How do you go from the first ten and a half chapters with this godly king and servant to the Lord who had seen God's goodness, his grace, his mercy, who had been given all of this wealth and other things by God. How do you go from that to somebody who becomes, as chapter 11 says, an idol worshiper, a man who builds a harem of almost a thousand women? What happened? Well, we're going to look at chapter 10 and the second half of chapter 10 today because when you first look at, the, at verses 14 through 29 of chapter 10, it looks like all the author is doing is, is telling us about Solomon's great wealth. But there's a couple of clues in the text that tell us how we got from the first ten and a half chapters to chapter 11. And so there's more in this text than what you see just reading over it and going, oh, wow, he was wealthy. Because there's a couple of things the author puts into the text that gives us an idea of where he's ultimately going to go with chapter 11. So it's sort of his way of writing a transitory passage that gets us from how Solomon was to how Solomon ended up. And so we're going to look at that today. The first thing I want us to see, this is in the first chunk of it, we'll look at the first uh, verses 14 through 22 of chapter 10. The first thing I want to see here is that Solomon violated one of the rules. He multiplied gold and silver for himself. He enriched himself as a king. Look at uh, verses 14 through 22. It says, now, the weight of gold which came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs and all the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold for each. That's about 12 pounds for each, 12 pounds of gold on, on each of these shields. He made 300 shields of beaten gold using three minas of gold on each shield. That's the 12 pounds there, I'm sorry. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps to the throne and a round top on the throne at its rear and the arm on each side of the seats and two lions standing beside these arms. Twelve lions were standing there on the steps, a lion on each one of the steps going down, leading up to this giant throne. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. 
All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were all of pure gold. None was of silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. Can you imagine that? He said, no, only gold is good enough. I can't have silver utensils. It's got to all be made out of gold. Verse 22, For the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish and the ships of Hiram. Once every three years the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. So what we have here is basically a description of this tremendous amount of wealth. Gold and silver and and, um, even ivory and apes and peacocks. That's just a small list. Now, some of Solomon's gold um, was acquired from King David. I'm not going to go into detail on this, but First Chronicles chapter 29, we find out that at the end of David's life, he tells Solomon how much gold and silver and other things that he had accumulated for the purpose of the temple. And it was a, it was a huge, massive amount of gold and silver and other objects. And so part of Solomon's wealth came from what his father had done to gather up gold and silver to prepare for the building of the temple. And if you remember, that temple was spectacular. All the walls were completely lined with gold. All the objects inside lined with gold. It was an incredible structure. And so part of his gold came because of what David had gathered for the temple. This passage here in verse 14 mentions another 666 talents. That's actually 22 tons or $1 billion worth of gold. And that's what came in every single year. So Solomon had over a billion dollars of gold that came into him every year. Some of it was from gifts and tributes from other nations. Um, Verse 25 tells us that. When you jump down there, it says, They brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules. That was the tributes brought in from other countries. To keep peace with Israel, other countries would bring in gold and silver and gifts and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it's doing good to your neighbor, so to speak. And so part of his wealth came from that. We also know that part of Solomon's wealth came from these enterprises that he set up, where he set up shipping industries, he sent ships to Ophir and Tarshish and other places, and so there were some business enterprises and things like that. You can find that in, well, if you jump back, uh, verse 11 here, chapter 10. She gave the king 20 talents of gold and very great amounts of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in. From That was from Queen of Sheba. So we have this wealth coming in from these different sources. Verse 22 of chapter 10, sent sea ships to Tarshish and off with Hiram, who happened to be the king of Tyre. So they had these shipping industries that would bring in goods back and forth. Just international commerce, much like we have here, right? In addition to all of this, there were traders that came in, merchants that came in, the kings of Arab brought stuff. But then there were also the governors, if you remember, he set up governors all over the country, 12 governors, different regions, and they would tax the people and bring that money in. And every month, one region was responsible to provide for all the king's needs and for all of his servants, which means they brought in food and and everything else. And so Israel was being taxed once a month for each region. And that was all brought in then to serve the king. Most of what we've seen here is is focused on the gold and the silver, but there was all kinds of other wealth too, from precious stones, animals, garments, etc. that were brought in. We have no way to estimate any of that. Now, all of this so far, there's been no indication that any of this was wrong or that any of it was sinful on Solomon's behalf or that he was doing it for himself because most of what we've seen here in the, in the chapters previous to this 
was money or wealth brought into the kingdom. It was for Israel's purposes. Remember, they were a large kingdom, maintaining peace for the region. And so most of this, we could basically say, this was God's blessings. When God told Solomon that he would make him wealthy, that's exactly what he did. Most of this is not personal wealth of Solomon's. Think about this for a moment. We've got a president who works out of Washington, has many of his needs taken care of, okay? takes advantage of the wealth of our country and our nation. But that's not necessarily his personal wealth, is it? Most presidents don't get rich until they leave office. <laughs> you know, start selling books and traveling the circuit. I can mention the Clintons and Obamas and certainly some of the Bushes and other things, you know. Um, but when you're in office, you do have certain advantages, a nice house to live in and transportation and security detail and food is provided and all of those wonderful things, right? It's not a bad thing. And that's kind of what we're looking at here with Solomon. However, there's another passage um, that gives us an indication that that wasn't enough for Solomon and that's where things begin to go sideways. I want to remind you of what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Jump back there real quick again. Deuteronomy chapter 17. The passage where we read about the rules for the king. I want you to catch something here. Just listen to a phrase that's repeated. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said, you shall not return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. What's the key phrase there? For himself. He's not to enrich himself as a result of his role as king. Now, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is where it all begins to go sideways. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Before I do that, though, I want to give you some perspective on the book. There's primarily two perspectives on this book, Ecclesiastes. One is that it was written by Solomon himself. And those that believe that it was written by Solomon, believe that it was written by a Solomon after he had repented, after 1 Kings chapter 11. Meaning, we see the destruction of, and the forsaking of God in chapter 11 of 1 Kings. But then we have this book, it's supposedly written by Solomon. But, most people would say, oh, he had to have written it after, he must have repented. But there's no evidence that Solomon ever repented. Nowhere in the scriptures. The last thing we learn about him is he had forsaken God. So one perspective is that, well, he repented, he came to his senses, and then he wrote this book, Ecclesiastes, and it's a warning for all of us. That's one perspective. Another perspective, which is the one that I take, is that it's not written by Solomon, but rather an unknown author, who writes it as a play where Solomon is the main character. And through the inspiration of the scriptures, he is able to say what Solomon would say because he wrote what Solomon would have written. But it's written from the perspective of a forsaken Solomon. In other words, one way to look at this book is to say, um, when he makes statements like, all is vain, all is vain, is to take it and say, all is vain, oh, except when you know the Lord. Except when you repent. And they sort of twist it. But if you take this book as written, where you have this character Solomon routinely over and over saying, life is meaningless. Life is vain. God is not fair. It's from a forsaken Solomon. 
And so it's actually a book that serves as a warning. And part of the reason I, I understand the book that way is because the author who wrote it talks in the first person in the first few, the first section, introduces Solomon, then changes to the first person. Then at the end of the book goes back to himself and warns his son not to be like Solomon. And so that's the perspective that I take on this book. And so listen to, to what comes out of the mouth of Solomon through this author, written under this inspiration of the Spirit, meaning this is exactly what Solomon would have said. The first 11 verses of chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it was fruitility. And I said, of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly, foolishness, until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under the, under the heaven for the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made garments and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself, from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I, brought, I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed blo- um, flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. In other words, I still stayed smart, is what he's trying to say. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all of my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity, empty. It was all a waste. And striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Those are the words of Solomon. Notice how many times we saw, for myself, for myself, for myself. Notice he says that he did all kinds of things here that the kings were told not to do in the law. He acquired gold and silver for himself. He acquired all these buildings for himself. It says that he had all kinds of concubines. We know that 300 wives and 700 concubines is what we're told in 1 Kings 11. So what we find is that at some point in Solomon's life, he went from the Solomon we saw in the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings to what we ultimately are going to see next week in chapter 11. And so when you look at, when you go back to 1 Kings chapter 11, or chapter 10, and this description of Solomon's wealth, most of what we read was stuff that God had done for him, but then in addition to that, Solomon pursued wealth, gold, silver, all for himself. Something kings were told not to do. Now, there's no indication when it really happened. We know that it did because in 1 Kings chapter 12, after Solomon dies, the people of Israel rise up and they go to the new king and they say, man, we are getting crushed by these taxes that Solomon leveled upon, leveled upon us, or levied upon us, and asked for relief. So at some point in Solomon's life, he went from the Solomon of the first ten chapters to the Solomon that we find in chapter 11. 
And my argument is, what we see in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes there, is what was going on in his head. It wasn't enough. So he began to multiply gold and silver and other things for himself. My guess is it probably happened in the last 10 years or so of Solomon's life. Partly because of the way that the chapters are laid out. We also know that in chapter 11, it does say that it happened when he was old. We know that he lived to be about 60. So it likely happened in that last decade of his life because we we have 40 years of his life is what's described to us. And we know the first 20 years of that, he was pretty solid. We know for the next 10 years he was solid. But then we don't have a whole lot of information on those last 10 years except what we get to in chapter 11. And so when Solomon got old, he began to accumulate these things for himself. He wasn't satisfied with what the Lord had provided to him. So what do we do with that? What's our takeaway for all of that? Well, the Lord blessed Solomon with all these riches, but he warned him through the law not to pursue them for himself. It's one thing for God to bless us and to provide us with with wealth and good things, but we are told not to pursue them ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have a job or shouldn't want to be able to supply for our retirement or have a nice home or other things, but we should not make that our pursuit in life. We're to wait for the Lord's blessings to basically trust him with what he's willing to do. Jesus warned us in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says this, You cannot serve both God and wealth. In other words, what he's saying is, you can't pursue God wholeheartedly and pursue being rich wholeheartedly. Make that your life's ambition, your life's goal, Because you're going to love one and hate the other. You can't do both. You cannot love both God and money. And that's hard for us. We live in a a country that we have been blessed tremendously. We are wealthy beyond understanding when you compare us to the rest of the world. And what we're talking about is the love of money versus the love of God. It's not wrong to have money. And God does make some rich and some wealthy, much like he did Solomon. It's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to have a nice place to live and a nice car. Those, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the pursuit of it, making it your life ambition, ultimately in forsaking God. Paul wrote that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. First Timothy chapter 6. We'll actually be in this probably a few months from now. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root, not the root, it's only one of many, a root of all sorts of evil. And some men, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a grief. Why does the Bible warn us over and over and over about the pursuit of wealth? Because he can't serve God in wealth. What happened to Solomon was that God had made him wealthy, stinking wealthy. And it wasn't enough. And so he began to pursue it himself, he told us in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And as a result, what do we find? He couldn't serve both God and wealth. And he ends up forsaking God. And it's a crushing story. And you'll see that next week. You know, it's funny because 
on my Facebook feed all the time now, I get these ads from different Christian ministries. And some of them just make me sick to my stomach because many of them are from people who have turned a ministry into a business enterprise. And I don't have a problem with somebody taking a ministry and having a business out of it as a way to provide for the family. You know, you guys very graciously offer me a housing allowance to help supplement my income because of the time and energy that I put into to, um, ministry and stuff. And that's a gracious, good, godly thing, right? Um, what I find striking about some of this stuff, though, is when I see an ad from somebody who, in fact, I saw one this morning, and it's, it's actually a, a bit of heresy. It's on a particular doctrine that's nowhere found in the scripture at all. It's from Eastern mysticism. But they're selling the package for like 600 bucks. And I'm like, well, first off, if this is something that comes from the word of God, why are you selling it for $600? Why is it that you've got this, this mystery that will rescue people from all these things you're claiming it'll do, but if it came from God, it ought to be free to everybody who needs it. But you have turned it into a business, and it's not like you're covering your expenses. It's 600 bucks for a one-hour session. This is nuts. It's one of the things that bothers me about some who call themselves Christian counselors that will charge exorbitant, I'm not talking about modest fees, but exorbitant fees, contemporary with maybe the shrinks and the psychiatrists that charge a couple hundred bucks an hour. If you are a Christian counselor, you have a right to make a living on that, scripturally speaking, but you can't market it as what the world does for help. There's a difference. And so it turns my stomach seeing some of these things, although I'm like, that's, that's not a ministry, that's a, it's a business enterprise. And Paul has a lot to say about that in First Timothy and Second Timothy. So, the takeaway for us, I believe, is, is this. God can make us wealthy if he chooses to. He may not. We need to be satisfied with what he does, but we cannot pursue wealth and pursue God because we will love one and will ultimately hate the other. Let's look at the next thing here. Another problem we see with Solomon is that Solomon multiplied horses for himself as well. He didn't just multiply gold and silver. He violated another rule, which is he multiplied horses for himself. Look at verses 23 through 29 in chapter 10. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. They brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, and mules, so much by year. Now Solomon gathered, and here's the key, Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowlands. Also, Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku. And the Lord, mer- or, and the Lord or king's merchants purchased them from Ku for a price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And by the same means, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Arameans. So what you find here is Solomon multiplying horses for himself, a violation of one of the rules given to kings. It's interesting because what the law says when he couldn't multiply horses for himself, 
He couldn't also go to Egypt. Remember that? It says specifically they were not to go to Egypt to get their horses. Why? Egypt had oppressed Israel for 400 years. God rescued them from Egypt. Took them out of Egypt. Never wanted them to return back to Egypt. And you can understand maybe why Egypt was a great city or a great great country. A lot of wealth and other things going on and God took them and put them in the wilderness for 40 years and then took them into their own land where they had to build their own country. You can see why they might say, I'm tired of this. I don't want to live in a tent. I want to go back. So God forbid them from going back so that they might establish themselves ultimately in Israel. And so one of the things he did was he didn't want them going back to Egypt to get horses. The reason was Egypt was actually probably the premier provider of horses in the ancient Near East. They were known for that. Now, why might the Lord prohibit the amassing of horses and chariots? Well, scholars kind of have different reasons why, and I'll share some of those with you, but there's probably a couple of different purposes why the Lord would not want Israel to multiply horses and chariots. One is he wanted to prevent Israel from relying upon Egypt as a partner in building a military. Because horses and chariots, the purpose of them was a military. And so he didn't want Egypt or didn't want Israel partnering up with Egypt in a military alliance. Again, because of what we've just shared with Egypt. The second reason was that chariots were primarily used as offensive weapons, not defensive weapons. Now, why might that be important? Remember, throughout the Old Testament, God continued to tell tell Israel, "I'm your protector. I'm going to be the one that cares for you. I'm going to be the one that protects you from your enemies. I'm going to be the one that fights your battles." God allowed Israel. Um, to have a defensive army, if you will. That was their purpose, to protect their own boundaries. But God did not want Israel in the business of nation building, of expanding their borders. And chariots and horses would have allowed them to do that. It was okay for them to have a limited number of chariots and horses, but not to basically build a standing army of horses and chariots. Because those could be used for purposes of expanding their borders. And God had no interest in that. He didn't want Israel going out and conquering the world. And so another reason why he prohibited them from amassing horses and chariots was because he didn't want them to build an army for the purposes of conquering the world. He would protect them and their borders. And again, he would allow them to have some horses and chariots. In fact, if you remember, when King David conquered King um, Hadadezer, he captured 7,000 chariots he destroyed all but a hundred of them. We know why, because in Psalm chapter 20, David says this, some boast in chariots and some in horses. In other words, some boast in their military might, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God, because he'll protect us. So David knew this rule. And again, it wasn't wrong to have a chariot or have some horses. They just weren't to build this massive standing army of horses and chariots. And so David, when he conquered this other king who happened to have all the chariots, and David had none, David destroys 6,900 of them because he knew the rule. And he knew, I don't need these chariots. God will protect us, which is why he wrote Psalm 20. Later on, we see that the kings relied on horses and chariots. When you go through the divided kingdom, get to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 31, God actually had to, has to chastise Israel for their dependence on horses and chariots. Listen to this. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel. They do not seek the Lord. 
Because what had happened was Israel, over time, began to build a standing army of horses and chariots and began to rely upon that. And so God, through Isaiah, finally has to come and say, you're clueless. You're relying on these horses and these chariots, your own military might to survive, and you've forgotten that I am your protector. I'm the one that fights your battles for you. You don't need those chariots and horses. But they had forgotten that, so the Lord has to chastise them. And so what do we find with Solomon here? If you look at this passage, back in four, uh, chapter 4, verse 26 of 1 Kings, there's an interesting statement here. It says this, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now, most believe that 40,000 there is what's called a copyist error. There are... Sometimes when a scribe would copy a text, they would make mistakes. There's not a lot of them. There's very, very few in the scriptures. Part of the reason why we don't believe this is actually 40,000 years, because Second Chronicles states it was only 40,000. I mean 4,000. It's more likely that Solomon had 4,000 stalls for his chariots. Now in chapter 10, verse 26, we're told that Solomon was importing these horses and ultimately chariots here probably because... Egypt was known for that. But it says he's importing them from uh, Egypt. So you have these two problems. One is he was starting to amass horses and stalls for his chariots and chariots. He was placing these in cities around Israel. even had some for himself in Jerusalem, which was fairly well protected. Why would he need chariots there? Probably because he felt somewhat protected having his own chariots there. But what we basically see here is that Solomon began to amass chariots. Now, in comparison, David, remember David kept a hundred of the chariots from the king that he had conquered. Solomon at this point has at least 14,000 and probably has at least 4,000 stalls, which means he's probably headed that direction, amassing more. Not only that, but this is probably even more troubling as he was getting them from Egypt, but even in addition to that, look at what it says in verse 29. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150, and by the same means they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Arameans. Solomon not only was amassing horses and chariots for himself, but he was bringing them in, and then he was selling them to Israel's enemies. In fact, the Arameans here continued to plague Israel throughout their history as an enemy. Solomon is actually providing military hardware to who will ultimately, ultimately become Israel's most oppressive enemies. Why? It's a business enterprise. He's buying them for one price, selling them for another. See a problem with that? So what's our takeaway with this? Well, it appears Solomon may have fallen prey to thinking that he had to rely on military power and might to protect Israel, rather than ultimately relying on the Lord. What would have ever given him that idea? He knows his father David. He knew David, a shepherd boy, and, the, and what God had done with him to establish Israel in the land and provide peace for him, he had seen that. God had given him peace all around him without Solomon having to lift a military finger. What would make him think that all of a sudden that wasn't enough and that he would have to amass this army of military hardware? I don't know. Sometimes we just forget, don't we? Think we ever struggle with the same thing? Do you think we ever fail to trust the Lord to do what the Lord has promised he's going to do? Ever find yourselves in that where... You look back at your life and you realize that God has pretty much taken care of you this whole time, but yet somehow you can't trust him in the next little issue that comes along. 
Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, just simply acknowledge him and what? He will make your paths straight. God has promised us that. Jesus himself, when he sent out the, the men to travel and to, and to share the good news, he basically told them, don't even take a money belt. Don't take anything. Why? God's going to provide places for you to stay, food for you, everything else. He says, if he takes care of the birds of the, fe- or be- birds of the air and the animals of the field, who don't have to work in terms of money and store up treasures, God provides them with food and water, whatever they need, and they're just animals. What makes you think he won't provide for you? So Jesus tells us, don't worry about your future. You know, one of the things that I was praying the other day, and it actually wasn't just the other day, it was probably three or four days in a row, about the angst I feel. Anybody else like that? I, I'll be real frank. You know, I go through day by day, and there's always a little bit of angst somewhere. I'm thinking about, I saw my, my electric bill the other day, and it's like, jumped by 120 bucks, and this is what it's going to be like going forward. I'm like, ugh. I looked at our grocery bill, I saw... I used a product called Mint, and it kind of categorized everything, and I went, oh. I mean, I think our grocery bill has gone up three to 400 bucks a month, you know? Gas has gone up, you know? I'm looking at what's going on in Washington, and, and I'm like, a day doesn't go by where I don't have some angst in my heart. And I just have to keep telling myself, and, and I was praying about this, and I'm like, you know, Lord, why do I have that angst? I'm 57 years old. I've been saved since I was 18 years old. You have not failed me once. I've never had a, a time where I didn't have what I needed. Sometimes I've been harder than other times. Sometimes I've been better than other times. I've been kind of like Paul in a sense of sometimes in want, sometimes not in want. Sometimes. Man, and then I started thinking, oh boy, you know, and I actually have to just confess that you've actually treated me really well and given me way more than I've needed over the last 30, 40 years. Why do I have this angst? And I think it's because it's what's in our heart just... Folks, we all do. Anybody with me on that? Anybody just sort of, as you go day to day, look at what's going on and you just have this angst in your heart and you're a little bit worried, a little bit concerned? Well, we are told in the scriptures not to rely on that, not to rely on our own understanding of what's going on around us, but to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Because he'll do it. Solomon somehow forgot that. Kings were not supposed to build armies like this doesn't mean they couldn't have an army to protect themselves to some degree because God would use that. But this idea of amassing this military monstrous hardware in some parts so you could go out and attack if you had to, the Lord said, no, I'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. Why? They were told to trust the Lord. And the king was supposed to set that example and somehow Solomon forgot that. And we'll see next week it led to forsaking of the Lord. Now the last thing, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, as it comes from chapter 11. We saw that Solomon amassed gold and silver for himself, a violation of what God commanded kings to do. Then we see that Solomon amassed horses and chariots for himself, something God had told him not to do. And the last thing we see with Solomon, chapter 11 actually, Solomon multiplied wives and women for himself. Look at just the first 11 verses. I'm just going to, I mean, the first four verses. I'm just going to read them to you. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughters, daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite and Amorite and Edomite and Sidonian and Hittite women. 
From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall you associate, or nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away from their gods. That's what God said all the way back in the passage from Deuteronomy. Don't build this harem of women, they'll turn your heart away. And what does this say? They'll turn your heart away from other gods, or to other gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300... I wonder where his wisdom was at this point. But he had 700 concubines, 300 wives... I'm sorry, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. These were all pagan wives. He says they're from all these different pagan Canaanite countries. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as his heart of David his father... Had been. That is a tragic statement. Like I said, we'll spend time digesting chapter 11 next week. I just want to highlight this as the third and final thing that happened with Solomon is that he continued to do these things for himself. But God had said, kings do not do these things for themselves. They don't amass wealth for themselves. They don't amass, uh, in this case, uh, uh, military um, that would be more for me to rely on than me relying on God. And the last thing would be that you're not going to multiply wives for yourself. It's not the way it's done. So what's our takeaway from all of this sort of big picture? The one overarching takeaway for me on this is how even the mighty can stumble and fall. I mean, everything we've seen about Solomon, there's, it's been a man we should admire in the first ten chapters. I mean, from his very beginning where he was so humble to where, I mean, how many of us, if God said, I'll give you whatever you want, would say, all I want is a heart to obey you, Lord. Now, we might say that now that we're saved, but, you know, but everything we've seen about him was this man to be admired, this godly example, and yet we see the cracks begin to develop here. We saw it with David, his father, remember that? Everything we saw about David, a man after God's own heart, but... At one point, what did he do? He sees Bathsheba out there, kills her husband, commits adultery, then kills her husband to hide it. Unfortunately, in David's case, he repented. So he saw it with David, his father, and now we see it with Solomon. I think that serves as a warning for us. If that can happen, if the mighty can stumble and fall, if a man like David or if a man like Solomon, who was given so much, who was supposed to be the wisest and most knowledgeable man that ever lived, if men like that can fall, what does that say about us? What do they say? Pride comes before what? The fall. And while we'd like to think that because we're Christians, while we'd like to think it's because we love, that we're insulated from that, how true do you think that really is? There are warnings in the scriptures, warning after warning about remaining steadfast. The book of Hebrews is a great example. The need to stay steadfast. It's not enough for us to say, hey, I'm saved. And as Earl Rodmacher says, get stuck. One of the things that seems to happen so oftentimes with us as believers is we get a little bit old in our faith. Get a little bit lazy in our faith. We no longer work, as Paul said, on our salvation or our sanctification. One of my favorite passages, and I won't turn there, one of my favorite passages is, it comes from the Apostle Paul at the end of his life. One of the last things he wrote was, I've finished the course. I've run the race. Where elsewhere in the scriptures, Paul talks about wanting to live in a way that he doesn't disqualify himself. So Paul remained diligent to where at the end of his life, he was finally able to say, 
I've stayed faithful to Christ. And because of that, now a reward waits for me. So I think all of this serves as a warning for us. If it can happen to Solomon, it can happen to us. Now, the Lord does warn us that if we're saved, he will keep us. We will ultimately see him someday in heaven, but that doesn't necessarily mean we can't train wreck in this life to some degree. It doesn't mean that we can't ultimately start to behave like the unsaved. It happens time and time again. I don't know if it was you and I or somebody was talking recently about so many of what we've seen in Christian ministries with men who serve churches and ministries that commit adultery and embezzlement or other things. It happens to the best of men and the best of women. It should serve as a warning to us. How do we prevent against that? Well, what did the Lord warn Solomon? Just to keep seeking his statutes, keep seeking to obey those statutes and serving God in that way which is why it's so critical for us to know what's in here. Amen?